Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And I titled the sermon a parable of two prayers because I thought if I titled it the world's worst prayer that it might not get printed in the bulletin. Uh, but truly this is one of the worst prayers in Scripture, followed by one of the best prayers uh, in Scripture. But we want to look at two different prayers. Um, and we learn something about them and something about the prayer and something about the Lord as well. And you'll notice that the context really gives us a clue as to what Jesus is driving at in this parable. In the first verse, in chapter 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So it kind of sets us up right away for what he's going to, what he's going to tell us. But let's, let's pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another day that's set aside for us to rest from our normal activities and to receive from you. And Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you accomplish things through speech. You brought the world into existence, the universe into existence through speech, and we recognize that you bring Christians and the church into existence through speech as well. We are born again of the word. We are justified. We are sanctified through the word. We ask that your word would be effectual in our lives, accomplishing everything that you've set out for it to accomplish this evening. We pray that we would be moldable and malleable in your hands and that you would transform us more and more to the image of our glorified and risen Savior. It's in his name and washed in his blood and clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. And so now let's hear the whole parable here. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So far the reading of God's holy word. And so here we recognize that there are really two types of sinners in the world that are reflected in these two types of prayers. There are those who look to God's grace and mercy in Christ alone for their salvation. Those are the humble. And there are those who look to themselves away from God or away from Christ for salvation. And they are the prideful. Here, Jesus is telling the parable about one who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, they were self-righteous. They were looking to themselves. They weren't pleading for mercy or looking to Christ who was standing in front of them for salvation. They weren't righteous by faith, looking to Christ, but they were looking to be righteous through their own doing or through their own activity or through their own accomplishments or through their own heritage in one way or another. And here the contrast is made. There are those who humbly come to the Lord recognizing that they need salvation. And there are those who stubbornly refuse to come. And they are righteous in themselves, and we'll find that that righteousness will not stand the test of the holiness of God. 
And so it says that two men went up to the temple to pray. We shouldn't miss the context that the temple was the most holy and sacred location in all of Israel at the time. There were roughly two daily services in the temple where sacrifices were offered. Note that both men went up to the same temple, the same synagogue, the same church, if you will, the same service, but they stood slightly apart from one another. They did the same things, but for different reasons and with different motives. The striking feature is that the only word they have in common in their prayer is the word God. And we'll examine that as we go on. But we want to look at three things this evening. First, a prideful prayer. Second, a humble prayer. And third, a profound pronouncement. A prideful prayer, a humble prayer, and a profound pronouncement. You could also think of it in terms of three people, the self-righteous, the sinner, and the Savior as well. But let's first look at a prideful prayer, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the most religious and pious people of the day. In our day, when we look back at the Pharisees, we often think of them with derision or scorn. It's not a compliment to say that someone's a Pharisee. But in the day, it was. They really cared about the law. They really cared about doing good. They really thought about and desired to do those things which pleased the Lord. They were religiously conservative. They had scruples. They were intense about wanting to follow the law. And the Pharisee was standing by himself, it said, and he prayed this. He said, God, I thank you, which is a great start to a prayer, right? But what did he thank God for? Did he thank God for his grace or for his love or for his mercy, for his majesty, for his holiness, for his creation? For the sunrise, for the sunset, for food, for shelter, for the temple, for his word, for his faithfulness, for his abiding presence? No, it says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Isn't that interesting? Thank God, thank you that I'm not like these other people. And then he goes on and he lists some sins which he had not participated in. Thus thinking of himself as holy and blameless because he didn't do these particular things. He says, I'm not an extortioner. In other words, I'm not, I'm not a robber or I'm not a swindler. I didn't, I didn't violate the Eighth Commandment. He also says, I'm not unjust, which is really anything that falls short of the righteousness that God requires. And he says, I'm also not an adulterer. So he's saying, in essence, I, I didn't break the Eighth Commandment and I didn't break the Seventh Commandment. And now moving from these general things to more specific, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Even more specifically, God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Can you imagine that poor sap? <laughs> like he'd come into the temple to pray. He was a sinner. He recognized he needed a savior. Can you imagine if during your time of confession that someone said out loud, thank God I'm not like Reverend Nehemiah. I mean, you just think, how could you, even if you thought that, this isn't something you say out loud. What if the Lord saw the thought, well, he does. What if others saw the thought bubbles that are above our heads? Thank God I'm not like so-and-so. What does that really say? It doesn't recognize that at the foot of the cross, we're all leveled, right? We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We sometimes think there are sins and then there are sins. But any sin separates us from God. Any sin is cosmic treason. Any sin is the sin against the Lord and those who are made in his image. 
And so imagine this prayer, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not like that guy. Having offered his self-justification for standing before God because he didn't do certain things, he then now adds to it things that I did do. Here's some positive acts of righteousness. I didn't do these things, but look at what I did. I fasted twice a week. Guess what, friends? That's more than the law required. The law only required him to fast once a year. And so now he's saying, look at everything I did. I fast twice a week. I've gone beyond the law. I'm better. I'm more righteous. I'm more deserving. I'm more holy. Let me justify myself. Let me show you how good I am. He also goes on to say, I give tithes of all that I get. Again, that's more than the law required. They were to give tithes of they got, but not all the things here. Luke had said earlier, Jesus warned the Pharisees, said, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without the others. So here he is. We can kind of get the picture of this creature that God's talking about. He's really telling it about the Pharisees who are standing there, those who thought that they were righteous and treating others with contempt. He's exposing their hearts. They don't really love God because the pathway to God is through humility and through faith. And they don't really love their neighbor because they're treating with them, them with contempt or using them to try to get brownie points with God. In some sense, we could say what he's praying is good, right? It's good that you didn't violate the seventh commandment or the eighth commandment and that you sought to follow the law. But note that he only picked out those things that he did obey. <laughs> what about coveting? What about gossip? What about complaining? What about envy? What about impatience? What about slander? What about self-righteousness? What about hatred in your heart towards someone? Notice he only picked out the things that he obeyed. He didn't address the things that he didn't. And sin is deceptive like that. It makes us think that we're doing better or we deserve better or farther along than we actually are. Much deeper than just the acts of our sin is the sinfulness of our heart. When we read 1 Corinthians 13 and you hear that definition of love, or really a portrait of love, isn't it? It shows us our Lord and Savior Jesus. That it is patient, that it is kind, that it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't easily angered. When you think of fulfilling the law is really to love, any lack of patience, any lack of kindness, any envy we've had, any boasting that we've had, any insisting on our own way is falling short. And, but he didn't list these things. He just listed the things that he did. In effect, his prayer is saying, I thank you, God, that I'm such a great guy. You're lucky to have me in your kingdom. I'm a blessing. Can you imagine? Like, none of us would say that out loud, hopefully. But do we think that sometimes or feel that in our hearts? The Lord is exposing that some people do. God, I thank you that I'm such a great guy. Pride permeates his prayer. He uses the pronoun I five times. If he was an opera singer, right, it would be me, 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 me. This is what he's about. He worships the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. 
rather than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all about him. And Jesus told us this. I'm not being harsh. He said, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. To trust in themselves that they were righteous is the opposite of Father Abraham. Beloved, was Father Abraham justified before God by works of the law or through faith? Faith. Through faith. And here he is, allegedly a son of Abraham, but he's looking to his own righteousness. By the works of the law, no one will be made righteous. It's through faith. And so really he has a failure of the first table, the first four commandments. He's failing to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's failing to even come to him in faith. And then also he's failing the second table of the law because he treated others with contempt. So when Jesus says that he trusted in himself that he was righteous, in other words, he's seeking to be self-righteous rather than righteous through faith. So he lacks faith and he lacks love. He doesn't care for his neighbor. Other people made in the image of God. Maybe their sins are different. Maybe they even have more sins. Maybe they're even more atrocious in one way. But at the foot of the cross, they're all leveled. No one comes to God through his own righteous works. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone. And out of his mouth reveals what's in his heart. Thank you that I'm not like that guy. Thank you I'm not like those sinners. You see, the Pharisee compared himself to others, and he thought he was doing well. The tax collector, we're going to find, compares himself to God and finds he's not well. And one theologian wisely said, the tragedy here is not that the Pharisee was not far enough along on the road, but that he was on the wrong road. It's not this, that he hadn't done enough good works or that he didn't have enough self-righteousness. It's that through the works of the law and through self-righteousness, no one will be made right with God. So it's not just, I, I got to do more, I got to try harder, I got to go further down this road. The tragedy is he's on the wrong road. He needs to be on the faith road that's looking to Christ alone. And that leads us to our second point, the humble prayer. The prayer, uh, the prayer of the tax collector. The tax collector in the day was the most hated profession, unlike the respect we all have for the IRS today, right? The tax collector in the day needed to collect a certain amount of taxes for Rome, but then they could also allow, allow to charge as much as they want and could keep it all themselves. They were given to excess. They were given to greed. They were given to unfairness. In Scripture, they're often associated with the most depraved, the most despised of classes in society, the harlots, the drunkards, the gluttons, and the tax collectors. Ugh. Them. And the text is trying to draw a clear contrast. It says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A really short prayer, a profoundly beautiful prayer, one of the best prayers in Scripture. 
Where would he have learned this? Psalm 51. And singing other psalms growing up. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Note the simplicity and the purity of this prayer. There's no self-confidence in himself at all, but faith in God, looking to him. He's penitent. He recognizes that he's a sinner. He recognizes that he needs a savior. He doesn't make a comparison to others. Anyone else standing there in the synagogue that day, or I'm sorry, in the temple that day? Even as he looks for forgiveness, he recognizes what he deserves. You could rightly translate this as God be merciful to me, the sinner. The first guy kind of put himself in a class by himself, right? I'm not like these guys. But the tax collector does too. God be merciful to me, the sinner. He's recognized the weightiness of his sin. And he wants one thing in particular. And he recognizes he needs mercy. And that's what he prays for. And he asks for a very specific kind of mercy. The word that he uses here is a big theology word called propitiation. In the King James Version, it's translated as he wants atonement. In other words, he wants a substitute. He wants someone else to pay for his sins, someone else to satisfy the wrath of God. He wants a sacrifice. He wants a substitute. It's the word that was used on the Day of Atonement when they had two different animals and one of them, uh, the, the, the priest would put his hand on the animal symbolizing the, the sins of the people and it would run off into the wilderness saying, it is far away, it is taken away from them. And then the other one would be slaughtered. Without blood, there is the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so he would have seen either week after week or year after year throughout the rituals, recognizing that there's some kind of sacrifice or some kind of offering that needs to be made that can make me right with God. But he even knew through the system itself that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away their sins. They're pointing forward to something. They're looking forward to something. And guess what? It's the one standing before them telling the parable. He's the one. He's the one who's on his way to Jerusalem as he's telling this parable to lay down his life for his sheep. To pay the penalty for their sins, all of it. Whatever they've done in thought, word, or deed in any way that we have failed to love the Lord our God, any way we've failed to love our neighbor, any way we've failed to love our neighbor, that Jesus Christ took on himself the penalty for all of that. He was the sin offering. He was the sacrifice. He was the atonement. He was the propitiation. To propitiate really means to satisfy the wrath of God. The wages of sin is what, beloved? Death. And Jesus Christ died for us in our place, in our stead, as our substitute. We really died with him. He paid the penalty. On that cross was the only time that Jesus didn't address the Father as my Father or our Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he was bearing the penalty for this tax collector, for people like you and me, for those who recognize, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing to the cross that I bring, simply to it do I cling. That's my hope. 
And he satisfies the wrath of God because the wages of sin is death, and he really died. He paid the penalty. Fortunately, he rose again three days later and conquered sin and conquered Satan and conquered death. John, in one of his letters, will use the same word that might help us. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. To be that satisfying, atoning, wrath-turning, wrath-satisfying sacrifice for us. So that you can hear one of your ministers every week say, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Because Jesus endured the condemnation. And the tax collector's wanting that. God, be merciful to me. Be propitious to me. Provide a substitute. And Jesus has a profound pronouncement, our last point. How did Jesus answer this cry for mercy? He said, well, it's kind of too late. You really got to go out and try harder and do more, right? (laughs) Not at all. The cry for mercy is immediately answered. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified. He didn't have time even to clean up his act, did he? He went home justified. He asked the Lord for mercy, and the Lord was merciful to him. The Lord was propitious to him. His sins are forgiven. He has peace with God. He is made right with God because of the Christ that is standing before him. And it's making it really clear that there's only two ways here. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other man. That might even be too weak of a translation, and not the other man. He didn't go home justified. He didn't go home at peace with God. He went home with his sin and his guilt and his condemnation still hanging there over him. There are no half measures with Jesus. And our call to worship this, this evening, he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of Luke, all of the gospel is trying to point us to Jesus to recognize that we who are sinners have a Savior in Jesus Christ and He's the one. He is the Son of God. He is the promised seed. He is the sacrifice. He is the propitiation. He is the atonement. Everything that we need is found in Him. And so it's urging us and encouraging us to to come and to find our righteousness not in ourselves but in Him. And we recognize again that at that moment he's on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, but also during his whole life lived, he perfectly obeyed the law for us as a substitute as well. Some of you who grew up in a church like this have heard that your whole life, and that's wonderful. I didn't hear about the imputed righteousness of Christ until I was in my 20s. What a game changer. I'm so thankful to have grown up, grown up in a church where we had a really high view of scripture, infallible, inerrant, the word of God, a real high view of Jesus Christ. He is the son of God, he is the savior, and he died for the forgiveness of my sins. But I'd never heard that he also lived a life of perfect righteousness, and that righteousness is credited to my account as if I had done it myself. That's a different religion. 
That's a different gospel. That's a different savior. What a treasure we have to proclaim to the world. What a treasure and a delight I have to come and be able to say to you, come to Jesus. Not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but that you may be made, declared righteous. Your sins are put on Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness is declared to you now and always. And you can go home justified to have peace with God now and always. The text closes with this kingdom reality, right? Everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled by the Lord. But everyone who humbles himself is going to be exalted by the Lord. That's a kingdom reality over and over throughout Scripture. Those who come to the Lord prideful, boastful, arrogant are going to be put down. Those who come saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, are going to find themselves raised to a world and to a life unimaginable in glory, ruling and reeling with the king forever and ever. Beloved, justification is a matter of God's mercy, not of human merit. It's a gift from beginning to end. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles. We'll close with this. Just turn a little bit farther in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 19. Within a week of telling this parable, we hear about a wee little man named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector. Look at what the story says. Luke chapter 19. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Right? What's God doing saving a guy like this, a tax collector? He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have deluded any of anything else, defrauded any of anything else, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? Word must get out about what Jesus is doing, where this tax collector named Zacchaeus hears about this parable. This is the kind of Jesus he is. He has mercy on a tax collector, aware of his own sin, aware of how he has defrauded people, that there's somebody who can do something about this. There's somebody who can save them. There's someone who can give them salvation. There's someone who can be merciful to them. Oh, I must go and see him. Isn't that lovely? Is that the kind of Jesus that we're talking about and portraying where people just can't wait to hear about this one who is merciful to sinners? And while other people are grumbling around him, Don't, doesn't he know what he's like? Doesn't he know what he's like? You bet he knows what he's like, and that's why he's on his house to give him salvation, because he can't save himself. And just like with all of his sheep, Jesus calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down. Why did he come? 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Like Zacchaeus. Like Reverend Niemeyer. Like me. Like you. Like any who call on him. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you for how it strips us away of any idea that we can approach you or come to you on our own works or in our own righteousness or in our own cooperation. But there is a way to come, and that's through faith. And that's by coming to you, recognizing that we are a sinner and asking for your mercy and knowing that you do not refuse the one who comes. And Father, we're even privileged to know that behind all of that is even you giving us the gift to be able to come and to call upon you. What an embarrassment of riches that we have in Christ. Everything that we need for faith and for life is in him. And Father, as those who have been so richly blessed and so shown so much mercy, how could we not go out and show that to our neighbor and to one another as well? And we pray that your transforming grace would be in our life so that we wouldn't be proud, we wouldn't be boastful, that we would be people of abounding grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, please stand if you are able and let's sing together. Number 433, Amazing Grace. And could we sing the last verse a cappella? Number 433.
And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.